When I was a sophomore in high school, I remember very clearly uh, being very excited to start my, my first ever um, varsity basketball game. I was so pumped. I barely slept the night before. I got a haircut and everything. I mean, I was ready. We lost 72 to 27. I also remember that. I remember there was, I, was, I had this, these visions of grandeur about how this was going to go. I was so excited, and then that baby was over before it ever got started. And I remembered that game when I was reading this passage. Because as we read through, study through the story, the book of 1 Samuel, the story of King Saul... Saul, just, he got off to such a great start. It's been two weeks for us now, but he unified the nation militarily. They fought a great victory. He gave God all of the credit. Things started so well. We were so excited. And then we get to today's passage. And it's hard not to think, man, this thing's going to be over before it gets really good and, and going. And it's kind of true. Today, God is, he's not going to fire Saul like on the spot, but he is going to remove the monarchy or the dynasty from Saul. In other words, you're the only one in your family who's ever going to be king. Your, your family's out. The fact that that happened is sort of important, you know, biblically, historically, but why Saul deserved that is what's most instructive for us. Let's read this passage together. This is 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to read the first 15 verses, which read this way. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Beit El or Bethel while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent or his house. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison, garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Verse 5. Now the Philistines were assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped at Michmash east of Beit Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in dire straits, for the people were hard pressed, then the soldiers hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan River into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people who followed him were trembling. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from Saul. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offering. 
As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after God's own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose, and he went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. There's our passage for this morning. Um, I don't like to take bunny trails normally, but I'm going to make an exception this morning. I want to talk briefly about verse 1, because it's a great example of a textual problem in our Bibles. If you are reading along in your translation there might have been some very big differences between what I read and what is in your Bible. This is a great look, a great example of a textual problem. And what I mean by a textual problem is there are a few places in the Bible where we're not super positive what the original author either wrote or meant. So I want to show you what I mean. This, this is the Hebrew of verse 1. Uh, ben Shana, this is Saul's name, Shaul, Ben Meleka, Meleku, Wa Shati, Shanim, Malek, El Yisrael. Here's what that says just literally. That's from the Masoretic text, okay? The, the, the ancient Hebrew that's been handed down very carefully from uh, the Jews, from Israel. Very literally, in the blue right here, this is from the DMV version. If you're, new, if you're new here, you may not know. The DMV is the dumb Maxwell version of the Bible, okay? So this is what this says. The son of a year was Saul when he became king. And then it says he reigned two years as king over Israel. Now, if you're translating that, you've got a problem. Because Saul was not one years old. Right? When he became king. And he, he wasn't still in diapers when he died at the end of this book. So the question becomes, what do we do if we trans to translate this? Because either that's not what was originally written or it's not what the author meant. What he, what he wrote isn't what, what he meant isn't what he wrote. So what do we do? Some of our Bibles, like the one I read, was New American Standard. They just, they do some math, first of all. They go into the New Testament. If you read the book of Acts, the apostle Paul said that Saul was king for 40 years. So these translators say, you know, maybe, maybe Paul in Acts a thousand years later was just using a sort of a round number and he said 40. And obviously this should say the son of 42 years. Oh, sorry. Over here. 42 years over Israel. And then they just guess he was 30 when he became king. Other Bibles, King James, New King James, ESV, they do something like this. Maybe what the author meant 
It's not that he was a year old, but from when he was anointed king, it was a year before he was publicly um, inaugurated or crowned. And then he made it two more years before today's passage when God kind of starts to give him the hook. I can't be dogmatic with you and tell you what the original author wrote. And there are a few places like that. And I don't bring this up, A, to waste time, or B, to make you feel like you, you have to doubt what your Bible says is true. I want exactly the opposite. I want you to be able to believe that the text you have is, is accurate and reliable. And here's why. Here's why this is such a good example of a textual problem. They're all like this. In fact, this is one of the more major ones. And when I say they're all like this, what I mean is they, they never, exactly zero of these textual problems in the Bible change the meaning of a book, of a paragraph, of an author's main idea. See, today's passage that we're about to actually study, it means the same thing no matter how old Saul was, right? What will it matter if he was 40 or 42 or 18 or 26? Hike? Nothing. Nothing of that matters. Uh, most of the textual uh, problems in the Bible are like, did, the, did it say the Lord Jesus Christ or did it just say the Lord Jesus? Does it matter? Not to the meaning. No. So, you can trust your Bible. And by the way, the Bible is so reliable in this way. If you can't believe, if you can't, if you can't trust the meaning of the Bible because of these things, you can't trust anything that's more than 400 years old. If you find yourself a, a, a volume of the complete works of William Shakespeare, and you have a chance to read that, my advice is, first, don't. It's really boring. Second, you'll see whole sections of Shakespeare that are in italics because it's lost. So Oxford scholars wrote a chunk of the play, looked at what came before and what came after, and they wrote their own version in there because we don't know what Shakespeare said. And he wrote that stuff 400 years ago after the invention of the printing press. There's no chunk of the play missing in the Bible. There might be something like this or a word here or there. But, it, but it's, it's amazing that we don't have more things like that. All right, rabbit trail is over. Let's actually study this passage here because it's very important. The first thing, uh, just to set the, the setting of this story, Saul, King Saul, on the heels of a grand victory, which was two weeks ago for us, finds himself in a very dire situation. He calls into active duty 3,000 troops. Uh, he keeps 2,000 in a division under his direct command. He gives his firstborn son, Jonathan, a man who will play uh, a big role in this book moving forward. Jonathan gets 1,000 troops under his command. Jonathan attacks uh, Israel's greatest enemy during this time period, the Philistines. One outpost. Uh, he's very successful and word travels. You'll note that Saul sort of takes the credit. He, the, the message Saul sends out is that Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. Uh, you know, he is the supreme commander, so I guess it's okay. But Saul tends to be the hero of his own story, which starts to get Saul in trouble. But this is mainly a recruiting tool. 
Because Saul says, as he sends the word out, literally, uh, this says that, the, that, the, that Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. Literally, the Hebrew says, Israel has become a stench to the Philippines, to the Philippines, to the Philistines. Uh, that just means they're so mad they're going to retaliate. And so the people were summoned to join Saul. He calls up some of those reserves. He kept 3,000. He'd sent the rest home. Now he's calling some more on to active duty. And no one is prepared for the size and the scope of the response that the Philistines bring. Overwhelming numbers. The Philistines bring so many troops against Israel that defections start to occur. When we read in here that the Israeli soldiers start hiding in like cisterns, pits, caves, so they're not, they're not just hiding from the Philistines. They're hiding from their own military. They defected. Some of them cross the river and leave Israel altogether. This is the, this is the ancient equivalent of going to Canada during the Vietnam War. Right? They leave the country. And so here is Saul. He's had to run from Michmash to a place called Gilgal. That's going to be important in a second. And the troops who stay with them wish they weren't there. They're quaking in fear and they are leaving in droves. That's Saul's dire situation. Now we have to flash back to understand the rest of this. To something that happened on the very day that the prophet Samuel anointed Saul to be the first king of Israel. This was clear back. It's been weeks and weeks for us. But if you were here and you remember the story of Saul chasing his dad's donkeys. Do you remember that? God orchestrated all the events of that chase so that King Saul wound up right in front of the prophet Samuel. So that Samuel could tell him, hey, guess what? You're the first king of Israel. And Samuel sort of said, I know that's hard for you to believe. So here's how you can know that I'm telling the truth. On your way home, here's a bunch of stuff that's going to happen. And then when you get home and it has all happened, you'll know you are king. And then Samuel said this to Saul on that day. This is back in chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. When these signs have taken place, do whatever your hand finds for you to do, for God will be with you. What he just said, when you know you're king, you do your thing, Saul. God's going to be with you. We just saw that two stories ago. God was with Saul. He won a great victory. But then Samuel said this, one of these days, you're going to find yourself in Gilgal and you are not going to know what to do. I, Samuel, I'm going to join you there to offer burnt offerings and make peace offerings. But you should wait for seven days and wait until I arrive and I tell you what to do. Okay, that's the first command Saul ever received as the anointed king of Israel. When you find yourself in Gilgal, what's he supposed to do? Wait, wait for what? Seven days, but also Samuel. Now we flash back forward into our story today. 1 Samuel 13 
And Saul waits. He knows. He has fa- I'm, I found myself in Gilgal because he was at Michmash. That's where this huge military force of Philistines began to collect. So he has to retreat. Lo and behold, he finds himself in Gilgal and he says, I've, I, I've been told about this. He knows he's supposed to wait because he starts waiting. But every day when he wakes up, what has happened to his army? It has shrunk. It's smaller today than it was yesterday. And he goes to bed one more night and he wakes up and it's smaller again. And his already outnumbered army is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And he's scared. I'm not even going to have an army with which to fight. So Saul says to his men, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering. See, he's already got these animals set aside. He knows Samuel is supposed to come and offer those offerings. He's got it ready. But he decides, I just can't wait any longer. I'm not going to have an army left. There's no way we can win if we lose any more troops. Have you ever noticed it's easier to trust God when obedience like makes lots of sense and you can see how it would work. See, Saul just got the training wheels military test in the last story. Saul trusted God, gave God all the credit for their previous victory. But God let Saul have overwhelming numbers and the element of surprise. It's a lot easier to trust God when you've got the equivalent of overwhelming numbers and the element of surprise. It's way harder to trust God when you don't see how this could possibly work or make sense. Please don't hear anything I say about Saul with me like standing in judgment over him because I've been Saul a lot. But Saul jumps the gun. He offers these sacrifices he's not supposed to offer. And wouldn't you know it, who shows up as soon as, he make, as soon as he gets done? Samuel. Saul gets word that the prophet Samuel's coming down the road. So, so King Saul rushes out like he's happy to see him. I think what he's doing is trying to keep Samuel from coming into the camp and seeing what he's done personally. But I can't tell you that for sure. The prophet Samuel just asks Saul, what are you doing? What have you done? King Saul knows that Samuel is asking him, why did you offer those sacrifices and get started before I got here? Why did you you disobey? So, Saul takes off trying to explain himself. He says, man, the, uh, the men were leaving. My army was shrinking. You didn't show up when I wanted you to show up. They were going to attack at any minute. And I thought, man, if they, if they fight before I've sought the Lord's favor, I mean, come on, Samuel. You don't want me to fight in a battle without having the sacrifices offered to God first, right? So it couldn't be helped. I had to do what I had to do, surely you understand. 
The prophet Samuel is having none of King Saul's excuses. He says very plainly, you've made a foolish choice. You you haven't obeyed the command God gave you to obey. If you had, maybe you and your family could be king forever. But now, you've lost the monarchy, right? You've lost the dynasty. You see, God wants a king who will pursue God's heart. The king of Israel was supposed to pursue God And trust God to fight on Israel's behalf. Not pursue the biggest army. Not pursue the best tactics. Pursue God and trust God to fight. And Saul, he's just not that kind of guy. The passage ends with a very sad verse. Verse 15 right here. Why was Samuel coming to Saul? What was he supposed to do? He really was going to do two things. He was going to offer sacrifices to God. He didn't. He was supposed to tell King Saul exactly what King Saul needed to do to defeat those Philistines. And he didn't do that either. He just leaves. It's like Samuel says, well, apparently you don't need direction from God. And therefore, you don't need direction from his prophet So I'll see you around. Good luck. That's our story. That's what King Saul did to get the monarchy ripped out of his family. Now let me ask you, be honest. Does it seem to you like the punishment fit the crime for what Saul did wrong here? I mean, what did Saul do wrong? If you think about it, and like in our vernacular, here's what I think we would say that Saul did wrong. He had church too early. And he didn't wait for the pastor before he got started. Isn't that true? He hadn't fought the Philistines yet. The only thing he did wrong was he decided, I got to sacrifice those animals to God now. And for that, the kingdom gets ripped away from his family. Is that all he did? Well, yes and no. Saul's disobedience was bad. But when Saul gets confronted with what he has done, he takes an already bad situation and he makes it worse. And I think the real problem for Saul is how he responds to his sin when he's confronted with his sin. Because if you read back through that passage, once Samuel shows up, he asked one simple question to Saul. What did he ask him? What have you done? Everything Saul says can be categorized as one of these three things. Maybe just two of these three. Projection, rationalization, and denial. Projection is when I get confronted with my sin and I project that somehow onto someone else. Either I say, it wasn't me, it was him, 
Or I say the reason I did what I did was really because of him or her. If you read back through that that story, Saul's responses, how many people did Saul blame for sacrificing those animals before uh, Samuel showed up? And by the way, King Saul, he was not a priest. He shouldn't have been doing that anyway. There's, There's more to his problem, but he blames the army. If those men hadn't been running away, I wouldn't have done it. He blames Samuel. You didn't show up within the time. He did show up on the seventh day. But Saul says, you could have, if you'd have showed up on day three and waited with me, I wouldn't have been so scared. I wouldn't have done this. You've got some guilt in this too. That's projection. Rationalization is just when I try to make rational sense. I I somehow try to make it seem like my sin couldn't be helped. I couldn't help it. Or maybe everyone's doing it. You can't expect me to not be like that when everybody else does this. Right? Or in this case, here's some of his rationalization. Samuel, we all know those sacrifices were supposed to be given. They could have attacked. The Philistines could have attacked at any minute. And here would have them, them live animals would have still been here unsacrificed. So you see, I really, I really didn't have a choice. It doesn't matter how many people I can convince my sin isn't a sin. If God says it's a sin, it's a sin. It doesn't matter if I can convince myself it couldn't be helped. Under these circumstances, or whatever it is, denial is just denying that a wrong has been done. There's a little bit of that in there by saying, see, I I sacrificed the animals. I would never fight without asking the Lord's favor. I did ask the Lord's favor. Therefore, this probably isn't wrong. So do you see how Saul took his sin of disobedience and compounded it by not admitting that his sin was there? But let me ask you this again. Still, that's enough to get the kingdom ripped away? Why is that such a, is that such a big deal to not admit your sin? The answer is, yeah. And I want to share with you why this is such a, a big deal to the one that matters. I made a little chart. I'm a terrible graphic designer, so give me a break here. We'll do this just for Saul first. See, God wanted Israel to have a king. When it was time for Israel to have a king, he laid out the rules. Here's the kind of king I want. God wanted a king who would pursue God's heart, who would be after God's heart, who would walk in fellowship with God, who would lead in what God says is best. And every person, were we perfect, would be able to just follow along on that road. 
walking in God's best in fellowship with God, pursuing God's heart. Now, what is it that kicks us out of fellowship with God and off of that road? Sin. For King Saul, that was, he was told to wait for King Sam, for prophet Samuel. He was told because he was from the tribe of Benjamin, not, not a priest from the line of Aaron, he can't do those sacrifices. He did them anyway. That, that's, those are his sins. Sin is what kicks us off of the path of fellowship with God. And there are consequences that come with sin. Some consequences never go away. But there is a way to be restored back into fellowship with God. The only way to be restored back into fellowship with God is confession and repentance. Confession, confession just means agreeing with God about my sin. Repentance is turning and turning my back on that sin and turning back toward what God says is best. That is the only way out of this, this state of being where I'm not walking with God. There are no other ways. So when Samuel gets stuck, excuse me, when Saul gets stuck dealing with his sin, trying to deal with his sin using projection, rationalization, denial, it wasn't really wrong, it couldn't be helped. Here's why in this situation, it wasn't all that bad. You gotta give it to me. It's not all right. Necessarily, that means he's not confessing and he's not repenting. And that means living in the land of the consequences is the only thing he has left. And God wants Israel to have a king who pursues God's heart. For us, you know, you know what part of the good news is? God does not require perfection for us to be in fellowship with God and, and, and being after God's best and pursuing God's heart. He doesn't require perfection from us. He required perfection from Him. Jesus was perfect and we can't be. So none of us have to be perfect to do life with God. Perfection is not required. But confession and repentance They are, because there's no other way to get back in God's path. I, I can do this all day long and my whole life long. I can project and rationalize and deny that there's anything wrong or I'm doing anything wrong, but that doesn't mean I'm actually walking with God. Because I cannot live in and walk in my sin and walk with God at the same time. It doesn't matter who else believes it. And even if one of those people who believes it is me. But if, and if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. We talked about that last week. On your own time, we don't have time this morning. Go back and read last week's passage. Saul taught us, excuse me, Samuel, too many S's. Samuel taught us the theology behind this. And then we see, we turn the page and we see an example of King Saul doing it wrong. Last week was all about what happens when I get to rock bottom and I realize I've blown it. Will God really take me back? What's the answer? Yes, but what's required? Confession and repentance. We turn the page and we see King Saul in a very difficult situation who has to trust God to do what seems impossible. And he fails. He hits rock bottom. And he gets confronted with his sin. And he doesn't do what will put him right back into fellowship with God. It's so sad. I, as I read this, I, I wonder, just for Saul's life, how much different would his life have been if when he heard that Samuel was coming down that road, if he would have run out and greeted him and say, Samuel, I stink and blew it. I was supposed to wait for you. You should have been doing it. I should have never been doing what I was doing. I have blown it. Will you help me understand how do I turn from this? How do I get back on the road of fellowship with God and God's best? Because I don't want to live just denying that my sin is sin. How much different might Saul's life have been? Family, God still works like this. God wants you, he wants me, he wants us to walk with him and do life with him in a way that glorifies him because it's best for us. And when our sin kicks us off of that path, it doesn't matter if we convince ourselves we're not off the path. We need to believe God that what he says is best and believe God that if we will confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us of our unrighteousness, allow us to repent, and he will welcome us right back into fellowship with him again. And that is part of really good news. You don't have to be perfect, and it's a good thing because you're not. But maybe we should help one another confess and repent. Maybe we should be more gracious with those who need to that we might walk in fellowship with God and pursue after his heart together. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I, I am so grateful that perfection, perfection is required for fellowship with you, but you gave your son's perfection in our place. You let his perfection be on our account. And our eternal uh, life can be guaranteed through just our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But our life of fellowship with you depends on us confessing and repenting when we blow it. 
God, uh, thank you for the reminder that there are consequences for our failure to do so. Thank you that our consequence cannot be hell for all eternity if we have believed in the Lord Jesus. But give us hearts that want to pursue yours. To your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we will finish this morning.